Good morning. We have two scriptures today. One is from Exodus chapter 21, and the next is um, Romans chapter 6. Now, read with me if you would, Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the, ser- if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that you, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, lending to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is here. The Holy Spirit is watching. The Holy Spirit is listening. The Holy Spirit is empowering. The Holy Spirit will take the words of what would seem to us to be a couple of obscure chapters in the Old Testament and and apply them to our hearts that will make us changed people so that we don't just say we have faith. We actually show it. We can prove it by showing what we're doing. Enable us with the Holy Spirit to do your will today. Help us to understand this text. In Jesus' name, amen. On Monday, May 6, 2013, Amanda Berry screamed for help through a crack in the door at 2207 Seymour in Cleveland, Ohio. Angel Cordero and Charles Ramsey came to her aid. Charles since has gone viral. They kicked in the door and set her free. She and Ramsey called 911. Here's what she said. I've been kidnapped. I've been missing for 10 years and I'm here. I'm free now. She had a six-year-old daughter with her. Shortly after that call, the police arrived and found Gina DeJesus, 23, Michelle Knight, 32, Ariel Castro, faces charges on four counts of kidnapping, three counts of rape. The leading prosecutor in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, is pressing for an indictment of Castor for aggravated murder for the termination of his captives' pregnancies. These women were slaves. I got to think, what did they miss in 10 years? They missed the war in Iraq, the war on terror, H1N1 flu. Some of you remember that. The 2008 economic crisis... The Chrysler and General Motors bankruptcy. Osama bin Laden's death. Hurricane Katrina. 
earthquakes in Haiti and in Japan. And then, now, this is really big. Hang on. They miss Facebook, Twitter, iPhone. Missed it all. Now, most of all, though, all that stuff is just stuff. Most of all, they missed 10 years of learning to live with other people, of loving their families and the people who cared about them. Amanda missed the death of her mom from cancer. They missed 10 years. Said they spent 10 years with a horrible, torturous, murderous slave owner. Sound familiar? That's Israel's story. Except Israel, God's chosen people, spent 430 years with horrible, torturous, murderous slave owners in Egypt. So with this text, moving into some that Aaron read in the New Testament, we're going to follow the path of God's people from Exodus 21 to see how old slaves become new slaves with the master. So, old slaves. Exodus 21. Interesting text, don't you think? I was watching you. What is he going to do with this? Well, every single word of the text of Scripture is important. It matters. God matters. And so does this. And the only way this section makes any sense at all is by thinking through the context. 430 years of oppressive slavery and torture. And now they were just three months, you realize that, out of slavery. And here they are. Now they've got to learn to live with each other out in the desert and trust in a God who's going to send them water and food and the world around them. And only a gracious, loving, compassionate God would say, I need to give you some help here. Every day of their life till now, every single move they made was instructed to them by their slave owners, even to the point of what gender of a child they could bring into the world. When to get up, when to go to bed, what to do, how many bricks to make. And now... Satan, it looked like, was in complete control of the people of God, or so it seemed, until God completely wrecked the Egyptian army and put them all under the sea. And now here they, people of Israel, walking around in the desert free. Well, last week God gave them Ten Commandments, and he said, these are the words you should give to the people, Moses. And then he starts Exodus 21 by, the technical word is mishpat, it's the code of the covenant and he begins to explain and expand the ten commandments so that these people in his gracious loving way can learn how to live with each other and it's going to help us today i guarantee it now notice he begins this covenant code with slavery how to deal with slaves actually the term and i i don't want to explain that away i really don't I want to explain it. This is not slavery. The word here is bond servant. These are people who have, because of financial situations or great debt, they have put themselves into indentured servanthood for a family, and God is graciously helping them know how to deal with one another because the Bible does not condone slavery. In fact, in verse 16, you'll see that God has said it's a capital crime. If you own a person or steal a person or sell a human, that's a capital crime. So what God is doing here is now putting a code of conduct around this servanthood. And that certainly is going to set them apart from every other slave people in the world. 
its gracious limits. So you see, chapter 21 and chapter 22 of Exodus is all about ownership. As free people, these people of God walking around the desert are going to start thinking that they own themselves now and that they own their property, but they're simply stewards, even of their very life, not to mention the things that he has given to them. So class, let's get into Exodus 21. Now remember, as we start into this, the purpose of the covenant code is to regulate life in the promised land. So these guiding principles are often called case law, and they apply the Ten Commandments to this new society. Verse 2 starts with buying a Hebrew slave. Now again, this first of the case law situations God is giving is a gracious parameter around the practice of something that these people had just come out of for 430 years. These were people who were put into dire financial straits, and they sold themselves into indentured servanthood to another person. And in order to... Prevent the abuses of that. God says, this relationship ends every sixth year. And that person goes free. Verse 3, helps them with a little bit of the detail. Have you ever been in one of those informational meetings where perhaps a person up front will say, now after this you go to the back, you'll find some papers. There's five questions on the front, five questions on the back. Please answer those questions and take them to that door and give it to the usher in the back. Then the questions start. Well, should I use a number two pencil? Can I use a pen? Can I do the back first and the front second? Can I do, do I have to give it to the usher? Can I just put it in a plate? And the questions go, you've been there. You've been there. Well, God is trying with case law to maybe head off some of those questions before they get too far. And so that's what he's doing here. And if the servant comes in single, he gets married. Well, she stays but only for six years. If he comes in married, he goes out married. If the master gives him a wife in verse 4 and they have children, same thing, six years. Verse 5, what if the servant really likes it there and wants to stay? And the master really likes the servant and wants them to stay. Then they went to a public place and did a public act of taking an all and sticking it through the ear, probably the earlobe, but I don't know, it says ear, sticking it through, probably hurt, a bit of a sacrifice, publicly and forever marked as a bondservant who wants to stay with the master. Now I want to put a little boot on the application point here because at the end of this hour, I'm going to ask you to go to some tables back there And we have alls, and I'm going to ask you to, we've got band-aids, it'll be okay. No, not really alls, but they look a lot like sign-up sheets, where you can make a public commitment to do something today that will set you apart as a slave of God. Okay, let's keep moving, because I know you're he can get figure out what verse 7 through 11 is all about. It gets a little bit sticky here in our understanding of a free and individualistic society that we have. We understand that uh, they, didn't under, they didn't know anything like a society or, uh, that we have. So it appears that this is an arranged marriage situation that uh, God is seeking to prevent abuse of. Now, wouldn't arranged marriages be good, dads of daughters? Uh, Aaron, who read earlier, I first met Aaron when 
Tammy and I were interviewing him. He had just come on as director of Mark II Ministries, and we wanted to get to know how we could work with him in special needs at College Park. He told me he had gone to Indiana Wesleyan. He told me he had worked and taken a number of classes on special needs children and so forth. I'm thinking, well, Deborah, my daughter, went to Indiana Wesleyan, and she has a special needs degree. You ought to meet my daughter. Now here, they're talking a little bit differently, and this is a situation where a man gives his daughter for a price to the master who has second thoughts, and so she can be redeemed or bought back by her dad. If, however, he gives that woman to his son to be married, then she's the master's new daughter-in-law. And if he decides to marry another and not her, and she's not redeemed, then he has to take care of her as if she were his wife. See how God's compassion is caring for all the abuses that could go on? Uh, verse 11 through 27 deals with hitting. You know you're not supposed to hit. Sometimes hitting is appropriate, but not, not, not regularly. So in our house we have a rule, no hitting. God has that rule too. But like so many rules, there are exceptions and also abuses. So these verses give parameters to prevent those abuses. Striking that leads to death, capital crime. Non-premeditated killing is dealt with by the places, the gracious places of refuge where a person could run and hold on to the altar and God would judge as to whether they had done that on purpose or not. Premeditated murder is a capital crime. Striking father and mother is a capital crime. In this particular case, it appears to be much more than just reaching out and striking somebody. It's probably a long-term, repeated, abusive beating. Stealing a man, selling a man, owning a man is a capital crime. Cursing father and mother, capital crime. That probably goes farther than just saying a cuss word at mom and dad. It probably includes dishonor, long-term abuse and neglect. And if someone gets in a fight, knocks the other person out, but the loser recovers, the winner has to pay for his lost time and wages. Gracious God is saying, be careful how you punch somebody. Because you're going to have to pay for it. Think it through before you do that. Striking an indentured servant, leading to death, requires that slave to be avenged. I I tried. This is just not very clear to any commentator that I read. In fact, one commentator said, If there's a law without which the Old Testament would be none the less for wear, it would be this one. It probably means that that first striking of the servant was premeditated and prolonged until that servant died and the concept of being avenged is is again unclear probably a reference to taking it to the judges taking it to god and letting them make some decision on the matter the second hitting probably represents unpremeditated maybe even accidental hitting then if men get into a fight in the presence of a pregnant woman and she delivers safely the judge and the husband set a fine to be paid if the baby dies capital crime Verse 24, we often hear it called the lex talonis. It's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's another example of setting the boundaries of retribution. You can't just require everything from a person for those details. Now, I don't think it requires bodily retribution. If I poke your eye out, you have to poke mine out. But something at least that costly and no more. Striking a slave leading to bodily loss of eye or tooth, the slave goes free. Are you being blessed yet? 
Uh, there's a guy up there. He's blessed. Uh, you should be. This is a compassionate God who's making provision for abused slaves to be set free. Verses 28 through 36. Change the subject suddenly to the issue you are all waiting for. How to take care of your oxen. <laughs> well, in this section, most of the case law is self-explanatory, so you can read it. It makes sense. But it seems to me like God in His grace is saying, take care of your things and watch them. Don't let them get away and hurt other people's things. Put a fence around your dangerous stuff. Make other people safe. Almost like God, OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Act. Put up these boundaries and these barriers so that you're thinking clearly. This is good. Now, chapter 22. But if you're like me, I was done about right now. And I was saying, I've got to get up and stretch. Well, you can't get up and stretch. You might leave and I'll come back. So I want you to stretch in your brain. Here's how we're going to do it today. For 18 years here at College Park, I was the children's pastor, and I still hang around the little goobers all the time. This was a, they asked me to tell this joke time after time after time because it has theology, it has good theology, and it's a Bible story, and they wanted to hear this joke. It's the most requested joke from Pastor Don that there is. So if you can help me with this, it'll give our minds just a little bit of a, a retreat here for a moment. You got to help. Knock, knock. Yeah. Goliath. Goliath. Goliath down. You looketh tired. <laughs> so do you see? It combines the King James English and, and it combines theology. And it brings us all back to chapter 22, verses 1 through 15, where we start with the laws of stealing. It's wrong. But what should be done about it in a society where God's the ruler and he wants his people to get along with each other? Verse 1, retribution. Verse 2, if a thief comes at night and is killed, no retribution because it's dark. The owner doesn't know if the thief is just a thief or a murderer. But if the thief comes in the daytime, he can be caught and identified. And so he must make retribution. And if he doesn't have it, he puts himself in bond slavery. Verse 4, the cost of stealing is more than you want to pay. It's double, so don't steal. Verse 5, keep your livestock on your side of the fence, or you pay restitution from the best of your field, not the back 40. Verse 6, if you're building a fire to, to burn off all the stuff you don't want anymore, take care of it. If it goes over into the other, your neighbor's field, You have to repay with the best of your stuff. Then verse 7 through 15, laws having to deal with depositors or if someone gave you something for safekeeping. Seven, if it's stolen, the thief pays double. Eight, if the thief is not found, I've watched CSI enough to know who's the first suspect. The person who was taking care of it. So since there are no witnesses, the final court is God and he'll determine. Verses 10 through 13. Keeping livestock safe. Uh, For instance, I have some very good friends who have gone out of town. They've gone to Alaska. And they have a little dog, and they left their little dog with a couple of other friends of of ours who have, now they have a little dog they're taking care of and a big dog that is theirs. 
So if the little dog is stolen or... This section gives guidelines as to how to handle this horrible situation, which I know is not going to happen. But if there are no witnesses to its being stolen or worse, then God judges by oath. And if the owner accepts the oath, he's cleared. But if he's stolen it, he must pay retribution. Verses 14 through 15, borrowing things. If you borrow my electric drill and it's damaged or dies... You make full retribution to me. Give me new one. If the if I was there with you when it broke or died, and I see you were not at fault, you don't pay. If you rent my power drill from me and it dies, then you get to pay me for a new drill. Thank you. So see how practical it all is? I'll tell you what. Case law can be very detail-oriented. But it's in this detail that we see God and his compassion for former slaves who don't know how to live and are about to embark on a new adventure, life with God and life with neighbors, and it's going to be a rough ride. If they would listen to the mishpatim, they would be okay. They began to get away from it very quickly. Old slaves, free to a new life in the desert, learning to trust God. Well, how about Amanda, Gina, and Michelle? They're now free. Googled a bit of that, and in a way, they're free. But news reports say that that they're suffering from nightmares, grief, sorrow, struggles in their new freedom. These families are broken, and they will never be the same again. They've lost too much. In fact, they were probably told that their family didn't love them anymore, was never going to come look for them for 10 years. They have to unlearn old slavery and learn new ways of dealing with the world around them. And it is tough. But that's the that's the dilemma facing you and me as we come out of old slavery and to new slavery. Where we now become new slaves. We're going to head over to Romans 6 verses 15 through 19. And here's what the text says. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we are now slaves of the one we obey. So Paul asks, okay, are we now free from the law? So we're free to sin. All of us are allowed to do whatever we want, whenever we want, to whomever we want. And Romans 6 speaks directly to that and to our society, I believe. We're in a postmodern, post-Christian, really, world where the mantra is, I'm free, you're free, we're all free to do whatever comes to mind. 
You're free to be whatever you want to be, free to act upon any feeling that you have, except when you try to bring in the rule of law of a holy God who created us and has every right, every right to us. So verse 15 says Christ came and he fulfilled the law. Many, many, many things changed at the advent of Christ. The law was fulfilled, meaning it no longer has any dominion over us. The judgment was paid. Salvation was brought through the final sacrifice and perfect lamb of God. So now that we're under this grace, do we not have to obey the law anymore? Are we allowed to sin? No. We're new slaves. Serving a new master. We're bondservants now of the one we obey. And make no mistake. And here's the point. You will be a bondservant to something. There is the, the big lie of Satan is that you're free. We serve either Satan leading to death or we serve Christ leading to life. We were once slaves to sin, but now we're obedient to God. So here's Paul's expression there is, thanks be to God. And you can almost see him mopping his brows. And he uses this phrase, obedient from the heart. It's always been about the heart, hasn't it? Even when he gave the Ten Commandments, he said, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I've watched little people for years just love them. I love to see them learn things and to grow and to, to move on. I believe in the next generation learning the mighty deeds of God as they are in the Sunday school classes. And in my observations, I realize that they've all set their hearts on things that are not to the standard of teaching you parents have set for them. You may have noticed that as well. We do have a grandson. He's two and a half, a little bit more than that. And Liam is, we just love him, love him, love him to no end. He knows when he's at B-Mom, B-Pa's house, that when he wants to get down from the meal table, he just has to say, may I get down, please. There are some times, as he's learning that, where he starts to creep toward the edge of his chair. And he starts to turn sideways. And he scoots a little bit closer to the side of his chair. And he edges off the side. And he gets closer and closer to the floor, all the while looking at us to see if we notice him. But we notice everything about Liam. So what we're waiting for is... And then we'll say, we'll bring him back to the standard of teaching. You must, you get to ask, may I get down, please? And he does it. He will hold to that standard of teaching. Just forgets a little bit sometimes. He's far advanced than most kids his age. So he's really (laughs) caught on to this whole thing anyway. If you look at verse 18, we are set free from the old slavery of sin to now become new slaves of righteousness. And we need to act like slaves. We need to show it, make it known and be marked as slaves of God. Take the love of your master public. Put that puncture hole through your ear figuratively with the all and become known as a slave to the master who is always going to treat you with love 
and care. Why? Because he gave his life for you. It's that simple. So that brings us to the last point of today, where old slaves become new slaves into life with the master. So notice verses 1 through 4 in Romans 6. It's a very similar wording to verse 15, doesn't it? Um, What distinguishes us in the move from sin to grace? And uh, the answer is our relationship with Jesus. So we look at uh, Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and I'm going to emphasize a particular preposition, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, there are several ways that you can look at your relationship between you and God. And I have a slide that from a book that I've been reading lately. It's called With Reimagining the Way You Relate to God by one of the Christianity Today editors, Sky Jathani. And he poses some very, very good questions. One way to talk about our relationship to God is that it's from God. We do what we can, we do what we do in order to get things from God. He's the great heavenly dispenser of all things good. Or it could be life over God. I have so controlled things that I don't even have to recognize God because I've done it all right. Or, and this one is what I grew up with, and many of you have too, life for God. Now, careful with this one. It's be good, do good, serve God, live life for God, and you will be blessed. As good as that is, it often puts us in a position of trying to manipulate God. God, I did this, therefore you must. Or under God, that's cause and effect. If he does not do what I want, then I'm ready to chuck everything because I didn't get my way. After all, I held up my end of the bargain. Do you see how all of them have a little bit of truth to them, but none of them are really satisfying? I encourage you to look at these prepositions, think about them, but this preposition mostly, with. Verse 4, you're buried with him by baptism into death. Verse 5, you're united with him in a death like his. Verse 5, you're united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, you're crucified with him. Why? To make this body of sin death dead to the, in the battle. And verse 8, now we've died with Christ. We believe we will also live with him. Isn't that a much better relationship than those others? I mean, there's a piece of them in the action. But do you realize God is with you and he loves you and he's going through what you're going through with you? And that's the gospel message. It's how to go from death to life in this life and the next. And it all hinges on who you're going to make your master. Remember, make no mistake. There are only two masters and you don't get a third option. One is Jesus. The other goes by many names. Sin, Satan, I feel, I want, or society says. But anything that is not Jesus 
is the other master and it leads to death every time. Make no mistake, you will be a slave. You'll be an old slave or you'll be one of the new slaves with life taken up with Jesus, your new master, your savior, Jesus. And if Christ is your master, would you consider doing that Old Testament tradition of publicly making it known, putting the all through your ear with committed Christian acts of compassion that bear the weight of the truth of the gospel. I'm going to encourage you to go, well, whichever door you go out, but eventually make your way over to that side because you will find several more informational guides to what goes on in Compassion Ministry at College Park, but also the caring for caregivers. You know, we are finding a large group of people who are taking care of their loved ones at home in our congregation. And we don't know who you are. And we want to come alongside and help. It's a big demographic in a church of 4,000. Who are you? We want to know. Please go let us. There's a short survey. You can use the pencils that are there. Just fill out the one side and only take a few minutes. Just leave it right there. And whatever questions you have beyond that, just ask the people at the table. They will smile and help you. We need grass mowers and errand runners for people who can't do those two things. Sign up. Sticking all through your ear. A team has formed to assist you if you're unemployed or underemployed. They're back in the table back there. They're going to begin very soon for prayer, training, and connections. And then grief share. This is a program. It's a 13-week program. We've got a couple of leaders and teachers that are going to walk through that uh, starting the first Monday of July. We just need to start it. There are so many people going through grief, and it's grieving and praying about it and sharing it with somebody else and then looking at the Word of God to see what God says about grief. And then there's other information back there. What's important, though, is that you set yourself apart in a public way as a bondservant of God. So why is this important? What's the big deal? I'm going to let Nikki from our adult... it's, It's called Sunrise. It's our adult special needs Bible study where I challenge you to find a group of people that worship more with more joy and energy than sunrise. This is Nikki, and she's going to tell you why this is a big deal. The of the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Will you believe? Nikki does. You see, Exodus 21 and 22 are not really just about case law. These chapters are the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, the fulfiller of the law. No one could keep the law, 630 of them or so. Jesus did. And he's willing to give you that righteousness if you accept it. So how are Amanda and Gina and Michelle going to do? If they have the Savior, and I pray that they do, they'll understand that they can live a full and abundant life with him. Our gracious Father, thank you for these words. Starting into it, it looks a little bit confusing. What is that all about? It's about a gracious, compassionate God that wants us to collect food and send it to people who need it. 
wants us to come alongside people who are struggling with grief. Wants us to help as a church for people who are out of work. That's what these verses are about. And then how to get along with each other in love and care and compassion. We want to be your servants. And we want to make it public today through actually doing something. If we say we have faith, we cannot prove it unless we also work. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.